The following podcast is for healthcare professionals only. All views expressed belong to our speakers and don't necessarily reflect those of Nestle Health Science. Hello and welcome to Inside Medical Nutrition Podcast, a podcast powered by Nestle Health Science and hosted by me, Dr. Linia Patel. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the successful management of cow's milk allergy in the community. And for the episode, I'm delighted to be joined by an expert in the field, Lisa Phillips-German, a pediatric nurse consultant. To begin with, Lisa, what would be really good is if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. What made you want to become a nurse? Oh, dear. So I've wanted to become a nurse since I was three years old. Um, Oh, my goodness. (laughs) That was the first thing I ever wanted to do. First nurse's uniform at three. That's wonderful. Yeah, never, ever changed from that. Always wanted to... um, kind of make people well and healthy and always had a drive to help people my mum used to say um so uh, from being very young I was the youngest person in County Durham to join the St John's Ambulance and do a pre-nursing certificate at 10 years old Um, my goodness and then from there on really just everything that I worked towards was just a dream to become a nurse I only ever wanted to be a nurse work on the wards I was an RGN first so I'm a registered general general nurse is that Um, what IGN stands for yeah registered general nurse so that's an adult nurse basically in in new language now because they've changed everything Um, and about 12 years ago I decided after working in A&E for 12 years that I wanted to do more pediatrics because I was the pediatric lead and enjoyed working with children and families in A&E Mm-hmm. So I went off and fought for about two years to dual qualify because they'd stopped dual qualifying pediatric nurses at that time. It was just midwives. Okay. Um, and I managed to get on and now I'm an RSCN as well. So, so I have to a break dual, that down for me. What does that mean? So that's a registered children, sick children's nurse. So basically a registered ch- nurse child now. So I have dual qualification. So a dual, dual nursing certificate. I'm on the NMC register as a children's nurse and adult nurse a prescriber. My goodness, that sounds all um, very wonderful. Yeah, so it was hard work, um, but it was really just to fulfill a dream. I never, I never ever dreamed that I would do both types of nursing. I, I nearly changed halfway through the adult nursing program to okay. do children, but I loved a so I so I decided I could do everything if I worked there. Okay. So that's how I started. Fantastic. So that extra training is basically what um, helped you become a nurse consultant. Is that the path? Yes. So, yeah, so that started everything off. So as I did the registered sick children's nursing, the um, strategic health authority, as it was then 12 years ago, decided that there was a a gap in services. There was not enough uh, registrars for pediatrics. There wasn't enough trainees. Um, so the, there was gaps in the rotor. So they decided to set up a course that was 18 months to um, at master's level to train ner- pediatric nurses who've been nurses for a long time to mm-hmm. be advanced pediatric nurse practitioners. Okay. And as but they wanted people who had any experience as well, because obviously it was from coming through the door to going onto the ward to discharge. So they wanted people who've been in different situations. Okay. So they trust asked if we would. Um, apply and six of us were trained as advanced pediatric nurse practitioners Amanda who's the advanced nurse practitioner that works with me now we trained together and we trained for 18 months with a pediatrician um, who who basically decided when we were ready to see treat and discharge kids so that was what led to this really because we started off doing pediatric day units and we Mm -hmm. started off in A&E we went off into urgent care centres we devised um, front and back of house situations and pediatric A&E to 
enhance the patient journey so that they were seen at first point of call by an advanced pediatric nurse practitioner or a consultant. We were trained um, for the two years by the pediatrician and he decided when we were ready because you have to be at registrar ST5 level to discharge a child. So you can't okay. just discharge a child as an SHO. Okay, so what's the difference, I guess, so I'm a dietitian, so this is all very exciting, very new for me. So you get a, a registered nurse, as you said, and then you can basically start um, doing some extra training where you then become specialist, either in adults or pediatrics. And then there's this um, advanced nurse practitioner. And is, ba is that basically the road then to becoming a nurse consultant? It can be. So it depends what you do with it. So an advanced pediatric nurse practitioner would generally be on the registrar or SHO rotor. Um, they are just starting to come out into primary care. I was the first in the Northeast okay. um, when I came out five years ago. But there are a couple more that have come out since. Um, once you become an advanced nurse practitioner, you can then lead on. But you have to do your nurse consultant. You need to be working through um, the four pillars of advanced practice and at master's level. So the four pillars is basically um, as a nurse, your clinical practice, you have to have advanced knowledge, um, advanced clinical skills, and have a high level of knowledge to provide kind of a higher level of care that okay. goes along with you then expect it to be facilitate learning like a deep, um, within your role. So to be a nurse consultant, it's quite a new thing up here, but in London and places, they've had them for a long time, but you usually become a specialist in a certain thing. Okay. Um, and a lot of them work more in managerial, but out in primary care, because it's so new, we kind of, my practice divide this role more on looking at pinch points. So within my service, I've looked at pinch points over COVID. I've, when I first came out here, I looked at where we were lacking with pediatric services and I've infilled lots of gaps right across the PCN. Um, TCN to, being sorry, all these so our primary care. Uh, sorry, our primary care network. So okay. our primary care network kind of runs from where we are. It's County Durham and Darlington, so it runs um, quite a large area with two hospitals in there, and um, we have probably. In my PCN, we have five practices and I've just started a new satellite clinic in this, the second part of our PCN that has about 11 practices that I see children for. My goodness. So it's um, it's looking at gaps in the service. How, you, how What I did was I looked at how I could bridge the gap between primary and secondary care and how I could make it better, how I could improve the services for the family and bring care closer to home, but also how I could improve things for the paediatric service because they were overloaded by unnecessary admissions. So things that we would normally Wonderful. turn around within 60 minutes, I'm now doing that in primary care. So within the first year of devising the service, we reduced referrals by 52% and then we've reduced it 76 to 80% year on year. Wow, that's incredible. So, that's yeah, sorry. No, you keep keep going, keep going. So as part of this, it, it's kind of, that's how you get the nurse consultant role. So nurse consultants usually are part of research, they're part of service development, they're part of um, learning and sharing good practice. And mm -hmm. I've helped kind of in Carlisle, we, I was chatting to some people who were setting up the same kind of service. I'm helping a, a girl who's just started up in Northumberland at the moment. Um, we're trying to get a bit of a network going and she's come down and worked with me, looked at my clinic, how it's set up. Um, and then she's going to take bits away from that and try and replicate that elsewhere, which Wonderful. is really good. So that's how the nurse consultant role came about. It's kind of a bit of a leading in practice, if you know what I mean, yeah. out in primary yeah. care. Um, yeah. So my practice were really kind. They didn't have to do this. So here I'm the first pediatric nurse consultant in primary care. Um, and they devised the role because of all of the work that I'd done. 
That's wonderful. And so it sounds very much like um, nurse consultants have a few roles, yeah. um, which means that you have um, a number of different passion projects on the go, right? Because you're doing a bit of research, as you said. Um, yeah. There's the learning. There's yeah. do you do any like uh, publications, anything like that? No, well, I've, I've had um, I've had a, the clinics being published by the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health. I did a poster presentation for them um, a couple of years ago. So mm-hmm. I've done that. But actually, I haven't done much, but I am looking at doing more. It's just that I haven't had time because the service has evolved so much in the last two years and especially over COVID, because over COVID, we offered um, re- respiratory clinics. We offered step down clinics. We had a hot hub for unwell children because nowhere we're seeing kids with temperatures. So we opened a clinic every day, Monday mm. to Friday, so that kids could be seen from all of the surgeries, not just from ours, so that they were safe and so that the hospital could step down sick kids to us. Um, which we were the only ones in the area doing that kind of thing so over COVID we've just kind of things have just adapted and changed quite a lot um, and other areas have asked for the clinic to be put in their area so we've been quite stretched Mm, no I can imagine (laughs) I can only imagine you sound so busy you sound so busy I mean and um, I would love to know what you do day to day but I'm sure that changes right day to day day to day yeah I mean it does in some ways but we have our rotors of um, every day are the same so we have 30 minute appointments for what we call complex children so they're usually the cow's milk protein type of kids or the crying baby because you Ooh, it, yeah. because you you've got to have a, a really good history taken assessment and then you've got to spend at least 10 or 15 minutes with the mum because by the time they get to us a lot of the time they're quite distressed and they don't really know what's going on and they've tried lots of different things and nothing's working or they've seen lots of different people initially now that the service is up and running everyone knows about it the gps and the health visitors tend to see them once and then just send them straight to us which is really good because that's better for me because you're not unpicking lots of things and the parents have more confidence so we have those type of appointments and it's also for chronic constipation um kind of kids with abdominal pain headaches we give them the longer appointments because there's often a lot of education needed in that in those instances um, and a lot of history taken and picking at what's going on and social things because it's all family centered when it's that type of care then we have acute admission avoidance appointments so they are ones that kids are sick on the day and it's rather than the GP admit them, they might triage them from other surgeries and then send them to us and we'll treat and assess and, and treat them. And they're like 15 minute appointments. And then we have review appointments as well. So these are also for the kids with the cow's milk allergy, the constipation. We yeah. always have appointments where mums will be seen within a week or within two days or within three, whatever. We assess them and decide how how soon that family needs to be seen and even if it's daily we'll make time to see them until they're confident with what's going on yeah um so we have those appointments as well so and then on a night time between six and eight we usually have kind of appointments for adolescents with the same kind of problems but so that we give we offer an after school appointments okay um and after work appointments and we do that five days a week okay very interesting. And, you know, this podcast is about um, cow's milk allergies. So I want to focus a little bit on that now. So how how long have you been working um, with cow's milk allergy patients? Probably 10 years, um, five years in the hospital, which was a very different experience because the baby's just come in as failure to thrive or um, really distressed and not feeding okay. or a significant reflux. And then when you get into 
uh, gastroesophageal reflux and when you get down and break things down you think well actually could this be a cow's milk protein allergy that's causing the problem um, and then in the hospital we used to just really make that diagnosis right to the GPs to continue it and unless we thought it was severe you wouldn't bring them back to an allergy clinic okay. um, you would let them do that so in that instance, that was where it ended. So when I came out five years ago into primary care, the, I saw that there was a huge gap and the clinics were overrun with where the GPs just didn't know where to go with these kids. So they would send them back in. Okay. But obviously when you go to a pediatrician, because of the demand, they usually see the kids once every three months, every six months or a year. Um, mm -hmm. So the parents don't get the although they that sounds really they do get support but they don't get support in the community if you know what I mean because the GPs still don't necessarily know what to do with them mm, if they're coming mm. back week on week with them still crying yeah. um so we, that's when I decided to devise the cow's milk protein allergy and make that part of our clinic initially it started off just part of the clinic now I think we have um I have 70 gastroesophageal reflux kids this 70 70 70 yeah wow, and okay. 39 confirmed cow's milk protein allergy kids were well, non-IGE to be fair but um yeah so I have 39 at the moment that's from five practices so that's not too bad okay. um it sounds a lot it does yeah it does over COVID it's got a lot but uh and do you think that that's changed because of COVID I don't know I don't know whether it's changed because of COVID or because we know the symptoms now you know, I think it's become very much in public and everybody knows about it. And mums know the symptoms to talk to us. They, they know exactly what to tell us. You yeah. know, they come in and they know the symptoms. And these well, babies, tell, me, tell me about the symptoms. What are the classic symptoms? What so are you seeing? Usually what we're seeing is symptoms initially that can be manifest as gastroesophageal reflux. So you're arching, you're gulping, you're crying, um, you're vomiting with, during and after feeds. Okay. So you usually get that as the initial presentation, but then they tend to come in as feed refusal, explosive loose stools or constipation, regardless of what you've done or changed. And how old are these kids? Is it variable? So come, yeah, variable, but generally, so we were we were seeing them from about six weeks onwards, which is what you would expect with a non-IGE, isn't it? It, get, it builds up, it builds up, it builds up. And then um, they get to a point where they just start refusing feeds and they don't tolerate. Um, but it's starting, we've had quite a few from two or three weeks now. Okay. But we've had quite a few mums that have had two or more siblings with it. So that increases the risk by 42%, doesn't it? If you've got a sibling, oh, wow. each sibling's going to. So um, we've got quite a few parents that, at the moment which is quite bizarre that have got at least one or two children out of the three that they've had that have already been diagnosed with a cow's milk protein allergy previously then these kids that mums are recognizing the symptoms I was going to say like that. that yeah because they'll know <laughs> they'll know they don't and they don't want to go through the three months of trauma that they went through to get a diagnosis with the first one mm. so they'll come in a lot sooner and say look this is I know this is so is there an official way of doing the diagnosis or are there any kind of tools um, that you use so we, I do use the Comus tool. Um, Talk me through that. So the Comus tool is obviously the one that's used by um, Nestle, Nestle Provide. Um, they, it, what we do is there's a scoring system and it goes through each system of the body's so respiratory, kind of gastro, and then symptoms. And if you score 12 or more, you have a really high chance of being cow's milk protein allergy and you would give the milk. And to be fair, it does seem to be quite, good it does seem to do that and you can do it within a couple of minutes so I quite like to use that and teach the GPs and use 
ask them to use that when they're sending them to the clinic so I have a better idea. So the they... GPs doing the referrals to you, Lisa? Yes, so I get referrals from GPs, health visitors, practice nurses, um, parents self-refer, we accept that as well now. Um, so it's every aspect of healthcare really we, we accept and we also accept step-down referrals from paediatricians as well. So when they finish with the acute stuff, they'll step them down and say, can you manage okay. in the prime, in primary care kind of thing? Okay. And we'll see them once a year or once they're ready to wean or whatever. Okay. So talk um, me through so that you're getting the referral, you do the diagnosis yeah. um, and then what? And then we do the diagnosis and then obviously it would depend on what we try to encourage all mums to breastfeed. So if mums come in and they're breastfeeding and they think they've got a cow's milk protein allergy, then we continue with that. We encourage them to breastfeed. We ask the mum to do a, um, obviously a, a dairy-free diet for, for two weeks, two to four weeks, depending on the symptoms. If the lower gastro symptoms, I usually do it for four weeks. It just takes a little bit longer to settle down. The vomiting is usually the easiest thing to settle unless they've got really bad reflux, but the, the, the tummy symptoms, the griping and the diarrhea or constipation sometimes take longer. Um, I'm surprised that it takes that long for it to have an effect. Mm, so it, usually it takes two weeks for the milk to get the, the dairy, the cow's milk protein to get out of the system and two weeks for them to settle down. So we oh, always say okay. never, never to change anything for two weeks. Um, that would be the same if the mum had come in and the baby was on a formula. It still takes two weeks for the body to get rid of all of that, for the inflammation to settle and for us to see a big change. Okay. Um, we usually expect to see a change after seven days, a slight change. And then by 14 days, quite a significant change with a lot of these mums. Um, but with breastfeeding, obviously, we, we encourage them to stay dairy free and we ask them to take supplementation. A lot of mums already take that now because they take pregnancy supplements and then they go on to the after when they breastfeed and which have everything in. But if they don't, obviously, we look at the iodine, the calcium and the vitamin D. We ask them to take all those type of things to keep them healthy because yeah. um, we have had mums that have had hair loss and different things when they've reduced the diet yeah. and become like quite anemic and tired so we try to encourage the, the vitamins straight away so that the mums feel quite well when they're doing yeah. it um, so we do that and then we we assess these bits so if the mum's really distressed and the mum's you know had quite a rough time before she got to us we would see them probably at the beginning of the week and then at the end of the week in the first week oh that's nice they yeah. get seen quite quite regularly Re very regularly and some mums we've had that have been quite low mood because of how difficult they've had and how how much stress and not sleeping and, yeah, I can and things like that so we we do do kind of welfare checks on them sometimes in the week and we'll ring them every other day and just oh, see how they're fantastic. coping and stuff um and then, but generally, if they're quite well and they come in and they they have they're happy with the plan, we'll do weekly. So we'll speak to them every week. They'll okay. come in every. They can come in every week, even over COVID. They came in every week. We made a safe time for them to come into the practice every morning when everyone was cold and clean. Mm -hmm. Um, and so because these babies weren't getting weird, so oh. we we brought and we wear them every two weeks. So we wear them in the initial presentation and then we wear them at two weeks so that we can make sure they're still thriving, still gaining weight and still getting everything that they need in the volumes and things. Cause a lot of these kids, when they start to feed refuse, that's the problems that we have. Um, so then at two weeks, we'll do another assessment and we'll see how mum's going. If the baby is really well and doing really well, then we'll do another, I tend to do the four weeks just so that mum's had two weeks of recovery really and we can yeah. see that the baby's really settled and they're not going to go back over because we usually find that if it's reflux driven they start to go back over this second two weeks because they've had a bit of a rest the tummy's settled down but the reflux is the problem okay regardless of dairy free or 
or you know an extensively hydrolyzed formula the reflux is not going to change if we don't okay. treat the reflux so we tend to see how that goes and then at four weeks if mum says it's absolutely no difference baby's just the same then we take them back and just put them on a dairy free because it's generally not cow's milk protein allergy by okay. two to four weeks you would see a huge improvement in these babies um, okay. so we gradually reintroduce it back in an ounce at a time or a breastfeed at a time or mum gradually reintroduces cow's milk into her diet as in the milk ladder we would get her to go back up into the milk ladder and see how much the baby can tolerate and that if the symptoms so say we had a well baby that had done really well we would do that as well to see if we can replicate the symptoms and that gives us the diagnosis okay so once we've done that we put cow's milk back in the baby gets the symptoms back we we keep the babies on the um dairy-free diet whether it be extensively hydrolyzed or mum's dairy-free till the one basically before we think till they're one years old wow okay and I guess you're doing the regular follow-ups throughout that time right yeah yeah we do um so until the baby's completely settled and well we do weekly to two weekly follow-ups mums choose whether every virtual or that could be face-to-face if they want to come in we we always like at the beginning to do two weekly weights just to make sure the baby's thriving um yeah. and other than that once the baby's thriving we see that they're on the good centile mum's happy and they feed them well then we'll say to mum we'll do um virtual if you want to or you can come in a lot of mums like to physically come in and offload they like to see us and sit imagine, there yeah. and and that is fine you know we have no problem with that um so we do that and then we go to monthly until they get to weaning age and then once they come to weaning age we bring them back in and then we start again really because at that point you're talking they need to have we use app different apps to help them quickly find out whether foods have dairy in them um to make their lives easier we use a couple of websites that the so parents the tools that you're recommending yeah yeah so we use apps to help and are these so, free apps or yeah yeah all free apps? apps we always we always make free apps a lot of our parents are not um especially over covid everyone's not the socio-economical state it's been yeah, very no. good you know, a lot of them have had job losses a lot of them have had extra stresses so we always make sure that everything's free um yeah. and we only direct them to sites that are i only usually use sites that dietitians use in the hospital because the dietitians have been struggling with appointments and things as well because it's been quite difficult for them they've had a massive increase with lots of different things and a lot of their stuff's been really virtual so they've they've struggled so we've weighed the babies for them and then yeah. put it in because we use the same system so that they can see our notes see what the baby's been like see what the weight's been like and they can use our assessment to kind of enhance their telephone assessment yeah no actually absolutely and I'm sure that the management of all um, your children um, it's really important that you get lots of different healthcare professionals involved as well yeah. whether that's a dietitian or the health visitor tell me a little yeah. bit more about that and how that works in practice yeah so we do involve the in all fairness I, with myself now, I don't tend to refer a lot of the babies to the dietitian. Um, I refer the babies that are more complicated or they've struggled or they've had quite a difficult kind of transition um, mm. because they usually struggle more with weaning. If you have a mum that's quite good and quite um, up to date with things and she's good at reading stuff and she's quite confident in the cow's milk protein allergy side, I tend to just facilitate and support her to do it. We do it together. Mm. And I send the dietitians the ones that really need a dietitian rather than just yeah. everyone because yeah. they're overloaded as well. Yeah. So I try to do the same with a pediatrician. I only send them if they're complex. 
if they have persistent symptoms, if I've had to go on to a, um, an AA formula, you know, like the amino acid one, if I've had to go up a little bit, even okay. though I don't think that it's an IgE mediated allergy, sometimes you do have to do that because the baby's got so much inflammation and irritation to the gut. They just take ages to settle. And then yeah. we did have a baby that had F pies as well that just never settled. Um, and that's quite a rare condition that needs a pediatrician. Yeah. So it's after five years, I'm kind of filing now what I need to refer, what I don't. And what the pediatricians are saying is it's good for that. They can see that there's a massive reduction in the referrals. But what they are seeing are the ones that they really need to see. The complicated yeah. ones, the multiple allergy babies, the, the, you know, the ones that come with extra symptoms. Yeah, you mentioned some statistics um, at the beginning, uh, which I'd love you to repeat in terms of um, numbers that have or percentages in terms of reduced hospital admi admissions. Oh, what were those yeah. again? So uh, in the first year of setting up the clinic, we reduced our, our practice referrals by 52% to wow. outpatients and to a &E. um, obviously because we see acute as well. Um, and that would be acutely crying baby, but it could be an acute unwell child as well. Um, and we reduced outpatient referrals by the same, by 52%. Mm. And then in the second year and year on year now, it's 76% to 80%. Fantastic. Your commissioners must have been very happy with that. <laughs> they were very happy. And then COVID hit. So it, COVID kind of took over from everything. So we were getting funded and then, um, then it became more difficult. So, but our practice decided to fund us. So our, my manager's amazing. She's very forward thinking. Um, and she realized how busy I was getting. And she took on Amanda, who was one of the first advanced pediatric nurse practitioners that wasn't adult as well. Cause obviously mm -hmm. when I first started, I could see both. So it made things easier for them. Um, but Amanda literally sees children. So she took her on so that me and her could see kids together and they continued to fund the clinic for all of those practices okay okay so but yeah the commissioners are obviously are pleased because now we have a satellite clinic so I go once a week to another area within our PCN um that's right on the border of the PCN and I do a clinic for them now as well because they were looking for some help with pediatrics okay fantastic I mean that sounds like a massive impact in terms of like hospital admissions, as you're saying, but also I'm sure a massive impact in terms of helping parents. Yeah. Um, do you have any success stories that you want to share? Yeah, we have a couple. Um, the, obviously, cow's milk protein allergy. A lot of the parents we've got within 12 months, we've got quite a huge percentage of our children off milk, back onto yeah. milk and off kind of dairy free, um, which has been really good. And parents have said that they're felt really supported and it's been nice that parents who have had a child previously before I came out into primary care have said how much different the experience was and how much more supported they felt and how much easier it was for them because they could always access somebody who knew what they were going through and was happy and willing to help yeah. um but as other parts of the clinic yeah I've had some I've had a anorexic young lady who um was very poorly um, admitted and was needing TPN. And now two years later, I've got her on 2000 calories oh <laughs> and she's goodness. doing really well. And she's really healthy and really well. And she's an ambassador for the eating disorders team. Um, we work together, me and the eating disorders team, and we um, set up a pathway to make life easier between us because we saw a massive increase in eating disorders as well um, over COVID. Okay. So that was quite good. And we found, I had a little three-year-old boy who we early, we found cancer really early um, mm -hmm. 
in him and we got him to the RVI within 14 days of being unwell. Um, What's the RVI? Sorry, the, uh, the, P the Children's Hospital in Newcastle. Okay. So um, we the consultant up there said that normally these children don't get found for months and months and months, but he mm. was really early and he's in remission. Yeah. Um, and he had a neuroblastoma. Wow. So that was that was a really good one to see him because uh, he couldn't walk when he came to me and to see him he came to see me and running down the path um it was really nice to see yeah no absolutely some, yeah some there's been some nice ones even just parents parents even silly things like just some parents that have really struggled and mums that have had really bad postnatal depression and then coming back telling me and Amanda how much we've supported them and right into the practice saying how well supported they felt how amazing the service was how they never knew anything like this existed and um how friends wish that they had it in their practices and things like that so it makes you very you know a bit humble really it's no, nice it's, yeah it's something that's actually having a real meaningful impact in yeah. silly lives which three-year-old um lisa who wanted to become a nurse and help people that's exactly what <laughs> yeah. you're doing now which is wonderful um but i'm sure that your role also comes with some challenges maybe talk me through some of the challenges particularly actually with um cow's milk allergy management cow's milk allergy management is quite demanding really um it's quite exhausting sometimes because it doesn't matter what you do for some babies they just don't get or mums say they don't get better so mm. you can and there's literally even when you 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 speak to the pediatrician they'll say well we we're at a loss because there's nothing else it can be there's nothing else you can do some parents won't see anyone else so um they get quite latched onto you and you get yeah it becomes quite exhausting sometimes because it you might have your full day's work, which on a, on an average day would be 26 to 30 patients a day. Um, and then these mums are ringing and they're, they're in tears or they want something and they they do get to the point where they expect it there and then mm. within a few minutes of ringing. <laughs> yeah. So that's quite difficult um, because that adds a lot of pressure onto your work day and you, we don't really have admin time every day to do those things necessarily um yeah yeah I can at the imagine. moment so, you know as you can imagine but obviously these babies need what they need I think also as well for me now is a lot of other healthcare professionals have become also dependent on us so they don't do as much as they possibly would have done initially yeah and they just send it straight over to us okay. or they won't follow up after they've been seen and they send it back to us which is fine but even for a prescription okay we've seen the, the pediatric team so you need to to continue to see the pediatric team where unless there's a problem the prescription should just be an easy thing yeah so know. how are you overcoming some of those challenges um some of the challenges so I've, it's working much better now amanda's here so yeah. for the last year and a half that i've had amanda it's been amazing because normally I would work three, I would end up working three 12 hour shifts and then I would have an extra day where I would do a small clinic on the morning, but I would stay till late to try and do all those things. So you would work four long days a week. Um, okay. And when I came back, there was always a massive backlog of stuff to do. So would your advice be actually in terms of um, nurse led clinics be that actually that you have a team of different um, consultant nurses rather than just relying on one? Yeah. So like, 
I'm a consultant nurse, but Amanda's an advanced paediatric nurse practitioner. And to be fair, other than the service development, there's not much difference, really. Okay. I mean, we both have the same skill set. We train together. We do the same job. We both have similar backgrounds in paediatrics, um, both being A&E paediatrics and general paediatrics. So that's good. But I think it is, for me, it would be, yeah, I would say that it's always good to have at least two of you because yeah. it's nice to be able to bounce things back. It's good for clinical supervision and it's good for, for a sometimes you become emotionally exhausted when you're part of a family even the health visitors you know we do the health visitors now ring us and they'll have a long chat about families with us that they're struggling with and that they they ask they ask us how are we managing with them and then we make a plan together so yeah it's quite nice that way because then you've got extra support so when the health visitors are going out to the house we're saying that we're saying the same things to the families as they're saying if you know what I mean um, yeah and we can ask them to do home visits to see how things really are within the house when the parent you know yeah to support what we're thinking because the health visitor might come back and say well actually being in three times and the baby's really settled fed really well you know not cre- different things so then we have to say look and change things slightly um yeah. Yeah, yeah. You've mentioned a couple of resources. um, And I wonder if you could give us, I mean, I'm putting you on the spot here, but are there maybe top three resources that you would recommend um, that either colleagues that are listening to this podcast use or can signpost parents to? You mentioned something to do with the British Dietetic Association. The the Dietetic Association, I use their um, website for the cow's milk protein allergy they give a lot of good advice on yeah they've got a fact sheet or something like that up there and stuff yeah. for parents yeah and the healthier together website's really good as well the healthier together zero to 19 that's got lots of health things on and it's it's um it was devised by consultants up at the children's hospital mm. um, great north children's hospital so they have a lot of stuff on cow's milk allergy as well and they have a lot of stuff on there for primary care so okay. they have um they actually have protocols that primary care can follow that are really simple like flow charts um yeah brilliant and they have them for parents as well like a traffic light system for everything so you know what's red what's amber what's green when to see the doctor when not and with those for healthcare professionals it's really good as well because you can put the parents mobile phone number in and you can ping them what you want via the mobile phone yeah (laughs) which sounds but it for a lot of young parents that i have they find that a lot more useful than Um, and it's practical as well practical and giving them a piece of paper necessarily exactly i use that and then obviously there's some some of the allergy apps it's it just depends on what you want um, exactly well i think we've we've uh, we've come up with a a fantastic list there and actually we must bring um this conversation to a close which is a pity because i've loved um learning so much more about it and um lisa at the end of each podcast i ask our speakers to give us their main takeaways so what would your three main takeaways be for other health professionals um, or specialist uh, nurses that um, work in um, cow's milk allergy management what would be your top tips top tips is just to get a really quick good assessment to make an early diagnosis so quick assessment early diagnosis early diagnosis yeah. yeah make sure that you're using your allergy assessment your eaters assessment it's a really good one for kids um to make regular meetings and management plans with the mom always give them a plan never let them leave the room without knowing what you're going to do what you expect and what to do next if things go wrong because that way they have more confidence to wait the week to see you rather than pitch up in any two days later yeah and always have someone to talk to because it does get quite 
um, difficult um, yeah. sometimes and you have quite complex cases so always have another clinician or somebody who you can go to and talk to about complex families and utilize your health visitors and your school nurses and your outside agencies yeah. and kind of you'll support each other yeah brilliant tips thank you so much for your time loved having a conversation with you lisa thank you thank you for listening to this episode of inside medical nutrition If you enjoyed the podcast and found the content useful, please share it with your colleagues and consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. For more information on this topic or to share your feedback, please visit the Nestle Health Science N Plus Hub or click on the link in the show notes.